Everything is different now. All it's our, new, pro- our problems are over. Well, we have just new problems. <laughs> Those 2021 problems. Those 2021 <laughs> problems. The dumpster fire year is over. Now it's time for a dumpster fire mm. on top of a dumpster fire. <laughs> uh, Maroon on Mars, Matt and Hillary. With, with, uh, we're, uh, we're finishing the Ministry for the Future, our discussion of Kim Stanley Robbins' latest if not greatest novel. Oh, wow. Um, Zing. When you say if not, you mean it's not or that it could potentially be? My read of that is it means it could potentially be. Right. That's kind of, I think, how I use it. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever said that out loud. If you read it literally, it kind of means if you're saying it's the latest, if not greatest, then you would yeah. be saying it's the latest, but it's not the greatest. Yeah. If not, if not greatest. I just said it because it, it rhymes. It's a figure of speech. Yeah. I actually, I'm not, now that you've said this, I, I don't know if I know what that phrase means. All right. We've gotten the semantic debate <laughs> out of the way, or maybe we've just launched it because a lot of the latter half of this chunk that we're reading is about language and linguistics. Oh, wow. Nice transition. Yeah. Thank that you. It was smooth. Um, so we're starting with, uh, chapter 97 and we're going up to the very end of this, uh, book, which is, uh, ends beautifully and emotionally and wonderfully and hopefully, dare I say, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think so. Probably. What, one thing I like <laughs> about this, this, as the, as the book ends, um, is, is that section uh, because, um, In nine, section 99, where it's kind of that, like, basically a podcast transcription or a radio show or roundtable or whatever, where the future success in the future takes the shape of failure. Yeah. And like, you can only, you know, any solutions that will be, that will emerge will inevitably also be failures in another way, because the present is just a giant set of ruins that you can only hope to kind of salvage what you can and then build as best you can in the future that will inevitably need to be itself like fixed. Yeah. 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 And that, that does feel like that is, um, uh, that idea of kind of like the ongoingness of failure, failure is not like, um, defeat or an end. It's just like, um, it's part of try. It's part of trying things. I mean, that seems like that is kind of a theme throughout the book. It certainly seems like uh, it comes to the fore in this last section of the book, um, and is one of the ways in which it pushes against 
uh, it pushes against the idea that this is like a story about progress, right? Like things getting better or anything like inevitability. We also have these reflections on fate. Um, you know, Mary has said throughout, there's no such thing as, as fate. Um, nothing is fated. Um, and, and part of what that seems to mean, I think throughout the novel and particularly maybe in these last sections is the kind of necessity of, of a sort of, um, of like a sort of posture of openness toward the future that that is also about like being willing to work and being willing to try things and also being willing to fail at things um, uh, rather than to assume that like, uh, you know, the work that has to be done has to be to create something that is totalizing or, um, uh, uh, revolutionary in a kind of cliched way in that it like gets it all, all of, all of the detritus of the old is gone and there is only the new, something like that. I, I think that like that, the openness toward the future, mm -hmm. like what goes hand in hand with that is like about something about an honesty about what the present situation is. And also an honesty about the reality of the past. Like mm -hmm. there's this fondness of looking back to those revolution, those heroic revolutionary times to say something like everything got, you know, everything, there was such radical potential and everybody was, you know, involved and, and this was great. And like, let's get the guillotines out and stuff like that. Um, but to have an honest, to be open to the future in, in the kind of right way, you have to have an honest assessment of the past, which is that none of those revolutions worked out the way that we may remember them or, or we may, um, you know, think about them. Um, not only did they not work out that way, they didn't work that way at the time. Right, like they right. were uneven. They were, people didn't know what they were doing. There was no inevitability then either. Um, and they just, the, what, what characterized them was the courage to try and the courage to fail. Right. Um, right. Uh, which, which, which is like about a faith in a faith in action, a faith in, um, a, a faith in just your like individual and, and collective potential to like do better. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And I think that the, um, a faith also in the future in that the future is not given and it doesn't belong, uh, to someone or something else. Right. It doesn't belong to capital. However much like capital defines a particular way that we understand what the future is, like it doesn't belong to, um, uh, you know, like the state form or something like that. It's always in the process of being made all the all the time, right? I mean, and that I think that that idea, that thing that you just said about like even in the moment of revolution. Uh, you know, this, this, I think is one of the things that comes out in the, um, so much in the Mars novels that like the, um, in the moment of revolution, everything is just completely muddled and you don't necessarily know that it's the moment of revolution. It could just be a battle, you know, <laughs> and more than that, you're going to have to do it again. Maybe even the exact same people who had to fight it before are going to have to fight it again, you know, like, yeah. And here also we get this idea of, I think it's in that um, section 99 that you were talking about. Yeah, uh, on page 506, um, 
this is, I mean, this is these two voices, the interviewer and the interview, the prick, the prickly interviewee and the interviewer who we've heard a bunch of times before. Uh, revolutions don't involve guillotines anymore, alas. You think revolutions are less visible now? Exactly. Invisible revolutions, technical revolutions, legal revolutions. Quite possibly one could claim the benefits of a revolution without having to go through one. Uh, uh, no one knows who holds power anymore. Political power is one of those fossil words behind which lies an unknown. I mean, you know, uh, this seems to be like, this seems to be something that we should read as this is a description of this future moment, not of our moment, right? Where political power has become attenuated in certain kinds of ways. But that idea that like, that idea of the invisible revolution um, seems to me that it also suggests like, uh, that you don't necessarily know when it when or where it's happening right and being able to on from from the ground on which you stand the historical ground and and your like location on which you stand with all of your particular sort of like human coordinates you can't actually assess necessarily what change is doing what right and to dismiss the kind of like um uh, and to dismiss the sort of struggles or to assume that there are not struggles going on that you can't see, right? Or to dismiss certain kinds of struggles that don't seem to you to be like in line with like the largest scale goal may in fact be to dismiss like part of the revolutionary movement, right? That may be happening around you. And this is not to say that we should be, I think, passive and just like let it all happen or something. It's to say that like, we don't have the kind of standpoint necessarily from which we can tell, right? And what that says is that like, I think like we have to like throw ourselves into struggle, not absent ourselves from it. And I think like part of part of that um, is, I, I think those struggles, there's an inherently democratic um, dimension and increasingly democratic dimension of that. I mean, part of what the appeal of like past revolutionary moments has been is that people actually get involved with determining their own futures in an active, uh, proactive way, um, rather than being passive about it. And one of the things in, uh, 97 that, uh, which is a kind of account taking basically of the future. Um, one of the, one of the things that they, that they say on the second page of it on 502 is that um, this is an experiment. All of us in balance, we the people, meaning we the living beings in a single ecosystem, which is the planet. So part of that democratization has to does have to do with the fact that not only human beings, but the land and the animals who can't speak have to also be spoken for and represented um, appropriately. Like humans ought to be able to mm. represent themselves or to present themselves at the in the political stage um, on their own, like as individuals, but then also we have to keep in mind that there are, you know, uh, uh, non-human persons essentially that also need to be spoken for. Right, um, and that, right. that would be a fundamental, like sort of evolution or, 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 um, supersession or whatever of like, uh, our current, what we currently understand quote unquote democracy to be. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that this is, this to me is like very, um, I find that chapter 97 very moving and it is to me this is a very like utopian moment in the in the novel um 
because the for a couple of reasons, I mean, one of them is that idea of animal citizenship, right? Which is about, um, you know, we think of that as like, um, you know, in the sort of like legal maneuvering that it takes to grant personhood and thus like rights um, to something like um, an animal or um, to like a, a, a land feature that is um, significant or sacred, for example, to an indigenous group, right? Um, so there are like places in, um, at least in Australia and New Zealand that have a form, places like, and, and geological formations that have had personhood essentially granted to them. Um, so not just the protection of like, you're not allowed to build here, like, you know, on a national monument in the US, um, but like that this this itself is part, um, has a kind of status, uh, has the status of being a person, right? Um, but I think it's really interesting here that the, the idea, so we get the idea that like part of how we get to the place where we're granting our relatives, the animals, um, citizenship uh, or and and personhood is through the idea that like we can observe them better than we've ever observed them before. And the reason that we can observe them better than we've ever observed them before is because suddenly, because there is now, we've given them space, right? I mean, so we had, so there's this technology, right? The idea of the internet of animals, you know, which seems like an extrapolation from all of those like projects that are going on now through like radio tagging and other things like that, where like you can observe like large scale kinds of animal behavior. But just the idea that like, um, by sort of giving ourselves over to observation of um, other living things, in, in seeing them and in seeing how they live, like we see that we are like them, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? We see we see that kind of common, we see something that's like a common personhood um, in a way that I think goes beyond just that kind of like legal, that legal story about like you're a person, so you have certain kinds of protections on you or you have certain kinds of rights, right? Um, like that, to, so that part that you were citing about um, uh, <clears throat> all of us living together in this biosphere, some kind of super organism who can say, it seems like it's not just that we've like transformed a relationship to animals, right? To animal persons. And presumably this extends like to plant persons too, right? Um, it's that like hu the human is no longer like, you know, the creature who isn't tied to any particular evolutionary niche who can make its environment anything that it wants to make. The free, you know, like, you know, Promethean, like <laughs> Promethean uh, Lord of the world or whatever it is, it's like humans have also been changed like right. into creatures who um, like are environmental creatures. It's just that, you know, we can now understand that this is, this is a planetary thing as opposed to a sort of like small scale ecosystemic thing, right? And that, I find that just like, I find that very powerful, right? And the idea that this is also about the returning of this thing that here is called meaning. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have this like, um, not since the Paleolithic of animals meant so much to humans, been regarded so closely and so fondly by we their cousins, um, you know. Um, well, I think that there are like human locations all over the world where people do maintain that kind of relationship to like other living things. Like uh, in in general, right? You know, this is a picture of like an amazing return to a kind of like 
you know, life full of a kind of meaning that's not about like seeking the meaning of life, but just like, uh, you know, a sort of like co-presence with other living things. Yeah. Anyway, I just, I found this part like so beautiful and I love the like, the way in which like the return of animal life to the planet and the, you know, contraction of the human scale, right? In all kinds of ways, both metaphoric and like literal becomes like the theme of the end of this book. I think that the other thing, I mean, that's, re that's really well put. I'll just add a few things, thoughts that I had as you were speaking, which was that one of the, the thing that I think is so um, uniquely and specifically Stan about this is that it has a, it's a utopian mm -hmm. imagination or an anti-anti-utopian imagination, but there's an optimism to this where there's a there is a kind of a, a a kind of a left critique of something like the Internet of Animals because measurability of anything means quantification of something which which makes it subject to capital. Um, there has there has to be you know there 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 there's an alternative to that. It doesn't have to be subject to capital. And fundamental right. to the place that this novel has arrived at in this final section is is a subversion uh, gradual and subtle of capital so that not everything, and in fact, not everything is subject to capital. And in fact, um, certain things are removed from the possibility of capitalist exploitation. So that here, instead of monitoring animals so that you can more thoroughly exploit them like as natural resources, here the monitoring of the observation of, of animals brings us closer to them, um, uh, increases, uh, the conditions have been created whereby um, our recognition of animals as, um, you know, co-inhabitants, uh, as cousins on this, on this planet uh, is made possible, right? Um, and likewise, um, what this vision uh, requires is that there's, it, what, um, People speak now of an optimum number of humans. Some say two billion, others four. No one really knows. It will be an experiment, right? Easy to like um, be concerned about eugenicism in this in in this formulation, right? And like certainly, what we see with COVID is the bad version mm. of population reduction, right? Where it is attacking. Um, where Africa won't get the vaccine for another four years, right? By which time there'll be a COVID. 21, 22, and 23, right? Yeah, um, right? Where prisoners are being disproportionately killed by the vaccine, by the by the vaccine, <laughs> by, by the by the virus, where yeah. elderly are being and and uh, black and brown uh, uh, and, and poor people are being disproportionately killed. That's a bad version of population reduction. Here we have the vision of a future in which population can stabilize because women have their full rights. Um, because there is health care, because there is a guaranteed sort of income or some kind of uh, social safety net where people can actually make their own reproductive decisions um, and that kind of thing. So I feel like that, um, you know, that, that utopian perspective or that optimistic perspective that things could be different in a better way um, is absolutely crucial to understand when we um, read something like, like, oh, there we might be, it might be good, better if there were only 4 billion humans on the planet. Like that could be very easily misread, I feel like, or, mm -hmm. or if read in bad faith, essentially. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, you know, like there's, there's, there's not going to be at least, you know, from some 
perspectives ever away that, uh, you know, um, it, like the discourse of population is itself just like fucked, you know, like yeah, from, right. from, from its point of origin. Um, uh, uh, you know, I mean, so, but if we, but if we think instead of population, if we think about like, um, uh, uh, the sort of one, like, um, what's good is what's good for the land. Right. Um, and two, like, um, the fulfilling of need, right. That, that all, um, living creatures will get what they, they need. Um, then, um, then we begin to be able to imagine like a different kind of story than, than, than the sort of story that says like, uh, what has to happen is that you have to prevent certain people from reproducing or you have to like set these limits. I mean, and it's such a like, uh, you know, um, uh, I mean, really probably like from the 19th century on, but but definitely like from the post-World War II on, like, you know, science, science fiction is obsessed with population, right? And the idea of overpopulation um, not only in science fiction, I mean, this is also like becomes like a really convenient story about like um, where supposedly the threat is to our world, right? And I, my feeling is here, although we get the idea, like maybe there will be fewer people, but who knows, right? There's not a target number given here, for example, right? Um, you know, uh, you know, the, the threat is not a, like a numerical threat, right? I mean, like, or, you know, uh, and in fact, as we've seen, like, repeatedly in this particular novel, uh, th the question is not, uh, like, what are the many doing to fuck the planet up? The question is, what are the few doing to fuck the planet up? Right. And then what will be the way in which in all of the varying, with all of the varying, like, kinds of historical nuances, uh, you know, some kind of reparation can be made to the many. And here the many are also the other living things on the planet, right? I mean, and not just the humans. I mean, to me, part of how this section is, like sort of taking off what you were saying, um, part of how this section is specifically utopian is because it forces a reflection on um, if, thi if this is a vision of like human life and planetary life that is appealing, right? The possibility of us um, uh, living um, in sort of respect and connection to, and like not on top of um, and in competition with like all of our neighbors and relatives, like whether they're humans or not, like if that's appealing, like why is, does that seem so hard for us to achieve in the way that we live now? And I, I do think that a big, you know, like a real key piece to like how it is that capital works um, is that is that it constitutes us as individuals and that is our pri primarily what we are and as individuals who are quote unquote free and what free means is not bound by attachment and able to exercise um, you know and our and the ideal freedom is being able to exercise our like Promethean authority over the world. I can't believe I've now said Promethean twice. <laughs> Writing it down, it's going to be. Know, part of the, don't know uh, why that. Uh, don't know why that's come into mind. Uh, but anyway, uh, um, you know, and so, so to think about like what what's hard to shake about that, like what's hard to shake about that picture of what we are, 
Um, you know, and I think the other thing that you were just saying that is, is really important and is like deeply part of the project of this novel and Stan's other novels is like, um, yeah, so, you know, you don't have to have like, um, uh, when, when science can be done, not, um, uh, in the service of like capital's reproduction of itself, like it doesn't have to look like a kind of like instrumental, it doesn't have to be serving instrumental ends in that same kind of way. And therefore you could have something like observation that's closer to, or would let you have a different kind of thought about what it was that you were observing when you're also not presumably like competing for scarce like grant resources or constantly having to prove that like your interest in like animal populations like is worth it to your university in one way or another, right? You know, um, and we also get the kind of a little bit of that idea of the citizen scientist here too, right? You yeah. know, part of, part of the idea is like, throughout this that people long to have connections to like the natural world um if the listener uh, if if hillary's voice was just muffled by now part of the natural <laughs> world just walked right in front of her microphone yeah uh, and uh Evie but yeah a very dense coat <laughs> the vision of the of having just cameras deployed all over the place and you can tune in and check in with your favorite animal uh, in your favorite biome or something. It's like, there's a Mars rover up there. Why aren't there some fucking like rovers out in like uh, Yosemite or something? You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Well, um, you well, know, right. I know that there are, but there, there could be like so many more and it could be so much more fun than the garbage that we're uh, fed on <laughs> HBO Max. Yeah, exactly. Or watching like the panda cam at the zoo, which I mean, you know, whatever, I obviously... If a pan if a panda's having a baby, I want to watch. <laughs> Absolutely, but more more slow cinema like that, like the Norwegian train videos, or just like uh, you know, um, yeah, at the Buffalo Oasis, the the Bison Oasis, or something like that. I want to <laughs> exactly. Um, so Mary retires uh, in some notes, and then um, I'll yeah, I wanted to. Yeah, the narcissism of small differences too is a it was another phrase in in chapter ninety nine mm. that uh, gets uh, like minded people uh, engaging in continuous civil war with each other over methods, which is can't I can't help but think of the the recent force the force the vote debate oh, over this God, last right, week with. Right. The odious Jimmy Dore, like screaming at people on the internet. Just, I've never, never heard of that person before. Good for you. Let's, <laughs> you're lucky. One of our very devoted listeners, uh, uh, I guess, got some guff for sort of pushing, who's a member of DSA, who's probably listening right now. Um, he always As retweets us. Sean, I think. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sean. He, uh, they, they. Sean, uh, they, they, um, got some guff for like pushing back against Jimmy Dore and Sean, we're on your side. Uh, fuck, fuck Jimmy Dore and his like just uncouth, awful kind of like uh, disgusting screaming at people. Um, it's also just I like, I, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, I, I mean, some of the, some of this, this question, like the narcissism of small differences question is also okay. Evie. 
afraid she's going to like step on the keyboard and then stop the recording. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, some of the narcissism of small differences question is also like, to me, a question about like stakes, right? And so if there's a problem in which it's hard to figure out, and I think this is right, this kind of perspectival problem that matters a lot in this part of the book too, right? I mean, we get an, we get an, we get an, we finally get to travel in an airship. Um, you know, uh, we see from above. You know, we get um, Mary looking down on California and and thinking to herself, "Oh, it's like the model that I looked at all those years ago is now real," right? Um, you know, we have uh, so so throughout this section, like the question of like. How, you know, what it means to have. And then we also have like, as the novel has gone on, this real enriching of the story of Mary herself, right? And, you know, a kind of a, a filling, a filling it out so that the, toward the end of the novel, we are really traveling with Mary through grief and through the forming of connection and through figuring out how, what it feels like to live on her own, not in the form of her job, right? So there are all these things about perspective or whatever. So like one of the narcissism of small differences thing is like, well, how do you know what is important, right? Um, and part of that question to me is also about like being able to think, um, I mean, some of it's about like just not quarreling when it one way or another, maybe you're all on the same side, you know, and just like are gonna fight on different fronts. I don't know. Um, but some of it's also just about like connect with what the fucking stakes are. And like, you know, if your stake is like promoting your, you know, I don't know what Jimmy Dore has a podcast, a television show. It's like show, a YouTube show. Yeah. A YouTube, you know, whatever. If your he has a million dollar house in Los Angeles. Is if what your stake got. is promoting your shit, like then like, you know, I mean, this is whatever. This is also, this is just thinking about like fucking Twitter now, which like, yeah. Uh, I think the I think the mistake you know. I think the confusion that Twitter is the real world mm -hmm. um, or even represents the real real world with any degree of accuracy is a real problem for organizing. Um, I know it's so interesting because it's so uh, I I have been trying to stay off t Twitter in the. <laughs> in the last week, just because I think partly from like being alone, like it's so easy to substitute that for, um, you know, to feel like, oh, this is like having a little incidental conversation with people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's interesting to me because it is both a place where um, I think people very seriously share work that they're doing and ideas. And, you know, I really love the part of it where, people like post links to stuff that they have written, you know, not necessarily on their like sub stack or whatever, but sometimes, right. you know, uh, or articles or, I mean, I have gotten a bunch of like um, links to just to like uh, Google drive fucking troves of stuff that people have dug up and then are just like sharing. And yeah. that part I think is great and is actually really important because I think that's a way for people who don't have who aren't at academic institutions and thus don't have access to libraries, which by the way is like such an incredibly fucked up thing that like yeah. library, you know, like, you know, you need like special credentials to like, you know, anyway, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that that is part of Twitter that I think is like, can be really like great, you know? And then, yeah. but then the other side of it is just like, um, I just imagine this like vast outpouring of energy into this shit that doesn't matter at all all you know it's not even it's asking a, not even asking a question like 
what you know like it is in fact organizing around medicare for all going to get us i mean there's not even i feel like a large scale assessment of like um you know what seems to have been in the last year the kind of like failure of the idea that that could simply be organized around in, yeah. and then manifest itself in like yeah. the electoral process or whatever anyway sorry that was a rant about Twitter. i mean i think it's a real you know it's another underlying a little bit of what you're saying is the question mm -hmm. of centralization versus decentralization and you know, the question that if you're going to have a real political movement around anything, there has to be some amount of a mix of centralization and decentralization. Mm. And what so many of the Twitter personalities and YouTube personalities, their whole brand is, de it depends upon centering themselves, not mm -hmm. anything like the centralization happens around their show or whatever, so that you donate to that or spend your efforts listening to that or screaming at other people online about it rather than like centering the cause itself or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's like the, you know, one of my least favorite academic things, which is like to be a successful academic. I mean, and this is why actually like Twitter works really well for a certain kind of academic to be yeah. a successful academic. What you're supposed to do is like produce like an airtight line about right. something that you can, that is like, I. Uh, um, maybe it's like hard, maybe it's hard for the uninitiated to understand, but like, you know, whatever. And then once you, you develop, once you, once you, you develop your, once you, you develop your cult, who will like, like <laughs> cult of Prom graduate students promulg promulgate, yeah. <laughs> will, who will help promulgate it. Then you're, then you've got it made in the shade and you can get um, tenure and stuff. But like, but yeah, it, it's, it's complete in a weird way. It's totally anti-discursive, right? It's not yeah. about yeah. having a conversation at all. It's about. Yeah, creating like some kind of, as you say, like airtight argument about something that um, gets ends up just being boring because you can't actually talk about it or have any. There's no flexibility around it. No, no one else can actually participate in it. They can only reinforce it. Yeah, and it's uh, like what you're doing is you're just trying to defend that line. You yeah, know? which is also, I mean, which you know, like I, I think often. I, I often dislike it when people accuse other people of purity politics, because I think sometimes that is a way of like saying like, but I don't want you to say that things could be radically, <laughs> could be right. radically different. Yeah. I want to stick with my comfortable, like, you know, reformist position or whatever. Um, but the, but the problem with that is like wanting to set something up that then you're only staking it in it is that your position not be assailed by anyone else, right? Yeah. Like this is like, this is my fucking fortress, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, which like conversations are supposed to be, I mean, I don't think we have to like fight all the time. Right. But like conversations are supposed to be places where things open up and close and open up and close, not, you know, like where- um, Somebody wins all the time. Yeah, exactly. Or, or where you show like, you know, I don't know, like how well you like put the masonry between your- bricks or whatever. <laughs> I think just returning speaking to the book, huh? Speaking of narcissism. Just returning to the book on page or in chapter 100, when Mary goes to the final, her final meeting of the CCCB, whatever the hell that stands for, um, <laughs> whatever made up crap that stands for. Um, you know, I think that she, uh, sees that some that among this meeting of central bankers um she kind of recognizes that she's actually she has ha actually had a hand in cultivating exactly that kind of environment where 
there is a conversation going on that she contributed something to the discourse among these central bankers who are now pushing each other to come up with new ways to not, again, like not fix the environment, but to like stabilize monetary policy right, or something right. like that, right? To do their job in a way that actually um, has a has a long-term vision about sustainable health of the environment. And that uh, minister, Madam Chan, or yeah, right? Yep. Madam, Madam Chan has, is kind of stepping into the role as the representative of China um, <clears throat> to, you know, push new ideas. And so that there is a kind of, he, even here in this kind of weird, um, the mandarins who control the world, who secretly control the world, the secret central bankers, um, uh, even there, there's a kind of actual like ferment, uh, a, a ground for conversation. And I, I think that this is this chapter. I mean, this is not this is not the only place where this has occurred, but in this chapter, we see the way in which like. Um, uh, this is this kind of like funny, um, like utopia of bureaucracy, right? Because instead of the bureaucracy being right. uh, like the empty form that essentially prevents anything from getting done, right? That um, prevents, that is kind of like the antithesis of meaning or of possibility because it's only about like maintaining something that is purely like a set of formal relations that benefit only the few, right? Here we see that sort of inverted so that oddly like bureaucracy, like people's desire to do their jobs well, right? These, these you know, overpaid bureaucrats who run the world banks, like that has been like folded, turned in on itself. Um, and so by thinking that what they are doing is fulfilling like their bureaucratic duty, which is continuing to maintain this empty form, the value form, like instead what they're doing is part of this process of like, uh, you know, uh, making the world a place that can sustain like life and hence also mean meaning the meaning of existence being just like exi existing life being living right i mean so that that like you know again that kind of like um like theme throughout here of like um uh, uh all that is like abstract right. or airy retur returning to the material right the most material um uh that again seems to have happened i, I mean and mary you know mary sees it also as she's leaving as she's stepping back into her place as a person who's not part of an apparatus. Mm -hmm. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, the story of Mary at the end of the, of this book is another manifestation of that. All that is airy solidifies, concretizes, comes back down to earth to ground that like she reconnects mm. with her self as a individual person. That's not, as you say, like connected to this, vast abstract bureaucracy but actually like comes to understand like what she actually likes and what she's interested in and how she wants to just be her be herself quote unquote yeah i feel like even her that that the apartment that she rents is yeah. a is a is an attic so it's like both high up and then hence airy but because of like the pitch of the ceilings it's also oddly small and you have to like sit down on a little chair and then roll roll to the bed. Um, I feel like I feel like if I was a 65 year old woman, that's not how I would want to get into bed. No, and she's older than 65 now at this point too, right? Isn't Is she, she now okay. into her 70s? I'm not sure, but anyway, yeah. I mean, it's got to be even with all that swimming she does, that's got to hurt. Um, but you know, it it has it. You know, it 
it in itself is this kind of like, there's a kind of like, um, uh, uh, sort of spatial joke there about being brought down, both brought back down to earth, but also like having a different kind of like, um, height or airiness or possibility of yeah. seeing. I was also thinking that the section 101, which is the, um, somebody interviewing we don't hear the interviewer the interviewer who is rude and also does not understand obviously is asking bad questions interviewing uh, um somebody that's from 100. hong kong yeah yeah 101 oh, oh okay oh right 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 from hong uh, yeah from uh, like hong man kong. on the street and man on the street interviews yeah. person on the street interviews yeah exactly um uh i i was thinking it's interesting to have that there right because we're hearing about uh, the end, the end of like, you know, 40 years or something of democratic, um, out on the street every single day, the majority of, you know, as many, as high a percentage of the population as possible of those struggles. Part of what's interesting about having it here is of course, this could actually be a conversation about something that's happening right now in Hong Kong. Right. Um, and so there's something that's disorienting about it, um, in a way that I think, is this kind of note toward the end of the book to make us think again about um, um, the very the very nearness of this future, right? A future that we can mistake for the present, right? And why do we think that certain things are new or impossible or like you know fo a fo foolish hopefulness or romantic or whatever? Um, when also like right here with us, like these struggles are going on, like you know lit literally now. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. It's part of the like lose, 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 win thing where, I mean, that also just means basically like you're not going to win immediately. You're going to lose a lot and, and then eventually maybe you will win, but you, you, you can't, um, you'll never, well, you, you'll never win unless you try basically, unless you are willing to risk losing, you'll never, you will never win. Um, I love the, on, um, five fifteen uh, um, uh, the person being interviewed says, um, uh, so, okay. So, you know, the Hong Kong is in a kind of unique position in relation to Beijing, to mainland China, because, because unlike, um, uh, uh, Tibet, for example, um, Beijing needs Hong Kong, right? Ne needs it as a uh, as an economic um, center or whatever. Um, they couldn't just kill us off. That left only talk, the discursive battle. And happily, we people of Hong Kong recognize this and band it together. Solidarity, there's no feeling like it. People talk about it. They use the word. They write about it. They try to invoke it naturally. But to really feel it, you have to be part of a wave in history. You can't get it just by wanting it. You can't call for it and make it come. You can't choose it. It chooses you. It arrives like a wave picking you up. It's a feeling. How can I say it? It's as if everyone in your city becomes a family member known to you as such, even when you have never seen their face before and never will again. Mass action, yes, but the mass is suddenly family. They are all on the same side doing something important. Um, which I just, I think is a really beautiful moment. And again, here, it's this kind of flash of, of the stuff that we've only seen in 
you know, if we if we think that the story of this book is like the sort of twinned ministry stories of the hidden uh, the hidden operations of um, power in the form of violence and direct action and the visible operations of like political slash bureaucratic negotiation, right? Um, you know, if we think that those are the main streams of the book, I think we miss the degree to which we're also always being asked to think about, um, and we get these glimpses of what we're not seeing, right? The struggles that have produced the situation that brings the refugees to the camps, um, you know, the mass demonstrations that are happening, um, the emergence of solidarity all over the place, um, and not only the emergence of it, but but like the work, this chapter is really about like the work of maintaining that over the long term, right? You can't choose it, you can't make it happen, it happens, you're carried by it, but then you also have to keep doing it you know you have to keep being out in the street you have to maintain that struggle um over a period of time that you know the i mean kind of the the funny thing in the hong kong chapter is they have a date right right <laughs> um but most of the time you don't have a date you know yeah. like and you know it, so anyway i just i love that that thinking about solidarity and thinking about that along with the idea of the animals and other living things as our cousins right which is also about perceiving family, except that family are not necessarily faces that you know, it's just a feeling you have of being with others. Yeah, I think that's really important. I was gonna bring up family too, because th that it, uh, also the emphasis here on language, like language is the real family, that it's something mm. that, that the, the word family is just so, um, we've talked about it already so many times on the show, but so um, overdetermined and especially in America, well, especially in American culture. I mean, just in general, but just because it's the holidays, I'm, you know, thinking about it so much. And, um, uh, but the meaning of that word really, um, given like, a, it, it, like, you know, just the conditions of capitalism and the kind of patriarchal dominance of our society, like gives that word family a, a potentially like really problematic connotation or, or even denotation. And just to realize that that's, again, that's not the limit of language, like mm. family as a word, as a signifier can mean different things. And that thinking about language as the real family is really interesting too, because it's about, um, and later in the, in subsequent chapter with Mary's like learning, going to language classes and stuff. And the, the, also the, um, the refugee going to Swiss language classes or German classes or whatever. Um, realizing that that was also part of just practice and solidarity and um, mutual support basically of uh, that, that, uh, that a language uh, co constituting family is about practicing that mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and, and going through it in the, in the routine <laughs> way um, relates also to the notion of like, uh, of meetings as being boring, but also interesting at the same time, <laughs> you know, like, it's just yeah. like the everydayness and yeah. recognizing the everydayness as like, there's a kind of latent potentiality of, you know, utopian radicality within every, every, everyday moment, you know, in a way, um, the kind of miraculous nature of just nature in general and life in general, um, that we, that we just, Obviously, you can't recognize it every fucking moment of every fucking day because 
we have to brush our teeth, you know, we have to get things, <laughs> but like, it, it, but like, you know, um, it's important to keep them in mind, I suppose. I was just thinking about in that, is it like the, is it maybe the first, the very first, um, section of years of rice and salt where what's his name? I think it's the B characters like wandering all over the place. And then he encounters the redheaded guy yeah. and then they try to, they communicate. Um, they do manage to communicate and kind of tell each other's stories. Um, nothing magical happens, but like mm -hmm. basically there, there just is this really fundamental way in which they are able to communicate with each other, despite their, uh, despite their differences, despite the fact that they are um, both like, you know, under different kinds of duress, despite the fact that they're both basically fearing for their lives. And it's not like, you know, it's not this moment in which that then like, some, you know, they become like friends or whatever, because the guy, mm -hmm. the redheaded guy just takes off. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, as this kind of like this scene of like, um, uh, uh, this the scene of something fundamental in human being which is like wanting to be able to communicate with others right and fig and also just figuring out a way to do it right yeah yeah um and that i think is part of what's interesting about the language stuff is that both we get the you know there is some sense of the like long history of people being denied and refused their languages you know their languages being taken away from them not allowed to use them at home at you know children being taken off to schools and forced to use the you know the colonizer or the imperial language um uh but kind of like against that is also that um that sense against that sort of sense that language is bound up with identity is also the sense of it as this like fundamental human you know mm -hmm. part of how it is that we try to like um you know, be with each other. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so 102 is really great. This is where she goes on her around the world airship trip, which I cannot wait to go on an around the world airship trip. It sounds amazing. Why can't we have this? <laughs> Honestly, there's no good reason why we can't have this. Like they're, they're airship developers and, and inventors and shit like that. Um, they're, we, you know, like literally, I was just think I've just been thinking a lot lately about how fucking much money gets spent on the military, for example, mm -hmm. and how much there's just garbage in my street outside and uh, nobody like playing music, live music anywhere. And we could just have like music classes for everybody. And we could have airships and go around the world and the internet and animals. And we could look at watch TV and watch like little Wolverines play with their kids. And then, you know, why can't we have nice things? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool shit. Where's the future that was envisioned in the 1950s that was sold to us? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, that was like Where's a my personal future, helicopter, right? Hillary. Yeah. My <laughs> I know what I mean. Yeah, I don't know anything. I don't know anything about airships. I'm just, I, just, I read them and I'm just like, Jules Verne. <laughs> I looked up some stuff about airships um, because we're, of reading this book. So I don't know a lot about them either. But in, you know, in in Europe, there's a, a big, uh, there's, a, there's a community of airship inventors and stuff like that. 
They seem pretty cool. They seem pretty practical. I would do it. I say oh, yeah. I endorse the airship uh, idea. I think it's I think it's very cool, and I love this chapter um, for its kind of like world tour. I mean, it is the sort of like you know, um, uh, just like playing off like all of these stories about being able to see the whole world right fr from the uh, basket of a balloon. Um, I love the line on what page is this on. Um, 522 uh i think this is where they're watching the uh they're watching the wolverines um and you know obviously part of what's good about this is like wolverines are not beautiful um and they're kind of like squat and awkward and also like they are like uh uh intense messy <laughs> intense messy eaters uh, but mary is like you know she she is just entranced by getting to um watch it uh uh wolverine's not graceful but of course this is a human perspective this is mary mary watching they were also obviously capable confident happy on the snow unafraid wild creatures at home back at home after a century gone knitting up the world um it's just so it's beautiful it's so beautiful you know like um yeah just like a beautiful picture, a beautiful idea, like the playing off her and uh, Frank sitting and watching the marmots yeah. in the Alpine Meadow, um, you know, the little repetition here that hear her and hear her experience of it is different, partly because, yeah. you know, well, I guess we don't really know, but like probably because she had the experience before this second time when she's watching the wildlife, it's a different experience. Right. Yeah. And also she doesn't have a job anymore. So she's more relaxed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> she can actually enjoy things. Yeah. Whereas like instead Frank's like, let's go up to the Alps and look at some marmots. She's like, if you want to, yeah. I, guess. <laughs> exactly. I mean, wouldn't it be more fun to just sit in your hospital and let me do my work? Right? <laughs> she doesn't have a job but i i also like but it's this is again about her reconnecting to herself apart from the job that she had so there's yeah. also this kind of interesting thing not only like the utopian idea of having a ministry for the future that would be dedicated to the protection of like all future persons but also the mundanity of this is a job and yeah, it yeah. sucks your life and it's it's alienated labor and it sucks your life from you so that you forget who you even were <laughs> the cat is uh assaulting hillary um just affectionately touching hillary on the She's face patting my uh, face petting your face um but that you forget who you even were and so she has is having to reconnect with what she actually enjoys and whether she ever played or not like yeah. mammals all mammals play when they're young. She couldn't remember ever playing. Her childhood was so far behind her, but no, there it was. She remembered kicking a ball in the yard and so on. <laughs> exactly. Sure. Exactly. Like, oh yes. This play I recall <laughs> a ball was kicked. I mean, and um, we, we get like, uh, I mean that, that, uh, I mean, part of what's like, what it makes, what is important about the way that Mary, the kind of function of Mary in the novel is that she's not like 
a nature girl or an environmentalist or, you know, somebody who uh, has a strong spiritual connection to the planet or any, any of those things. Right. You know, and here, like we, you know, we learn a little bit about arts. We actually learn more, I think about arts childhood art, this man who just like does not like to talk, but we learned that he was, you know, a little child who loved to read Gerald Durrell and like, you know, ran around whatever county in Ireland, like finding all the animals he could find and had an owl stuffed and all of these things. So we have this kind of like sense of his childlikeness and we get much less of that from Mary, you know? So, so it's like, she does her work, right. That the part of her that was able to do her work is not something motivated by, I mean, maybe it's motivated by some kind of deep psychic content. Right. But we don't know that. Right. And we don't see her as a person who's driven by like ideals or whatever, other than the feeling that there are things that are necessary to get done and she has to get them done. So it seems like, you know, as you were saying, like here we see her, outside of her job, starting to take pleasure in the world, um, you know, in a way that like, you know, starting to experience the world as beautiful, as full of life, as potentially transformative, um, in a way that's not really part of her work, um, yeah. her work life at all. You know, it's not like those ideals come in, a set of ideals come in to like sustain her through that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Um, I, so the whole trip is incredible because they of how much of the planet they cover. Um, it doesn't say how long it takes. I guess a month or something, maybe. I'm not sure. Seems like it must take a while, right? It must take a month at least. But um, I think some other remarkable things, they get to the Arctic Ocean and um, it's all melted, obviously. The total population on the coasts of the Arctic Ocean still numbered less than a million people, which I think is so fascinating and so important to remember is that, again, thinking about language as family or just thinking about, like, obviously they don't share a common language, but thinking about the multitudinous kind of um, cultures and um, traditions that exist, still exist, have existed, um, that... um, you know, the totalizing version of capitalism actively destroy, constantly destroys. I'm thinking a lot about mass media mm. um, lately, especially like getting ready to teach a class uh, on Hollywood, mostly on Hollywood cinema um, and just how many voices, um, a kind of capitalist centralized culture industry just drowns out and um, eradicates how many traditions that just are completely forgotten um, that, that, were once organic and now they're, they're, they're literally extinct, you know, like that it's not a metaphor when you talk about languages going extinct or folk traditions going extinct, you know? Yeah. Um, It's an important like connection with animal life as well. I think. I was, that just made me think about, um, I mean, I love that line on the, that same page. Um, uh, There were many realities on a planet this big. And like, that's again, that's not only true in this future moment that we're looking at, that's also, that's also true in our moment. Um, You know, and and this is part of the way in which, you you know, of course, part of this is the sort of um, 
the way in which it, particularly in like, you know, in like settler colonial societies, like repeatedly we get like the idea that there is a monoculture and there's no other, right. That, you know, everybody else is extinct, right. Uh, there aren't, you know, there are no other ways of life. Um, and that's not only, that's not only about indigeneity. It's also about people who live differently in other kinds of ways as, uh, I like the, my well, favorite, right? yeah. Like, uh, um, being in college, you're not in the real world. Right, right. Quote, quote, right? Join the real world. Um, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. Because there's something fake about like living in a way in which you're like talking with other people and excited yeah. about things and like, yeah. Or like when I, when I was going to graduate school and I'm getting a PhD in this and my aunt saying, what are you going to do with that? I'm like, teach, be a professor. Oh, so nothing practical. <laughs> Meaning, uh, meaning you're not going to like sell your labor to someone so that they can profit from it like that, where yeah. the, like the real world yeah. works, you know, not that obviously academia, I, right, blah, blah, right. blah, we, blah, 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 yeah, yeah, uh, um, yeah. This is also just making me think about the, about Aurora. I, I think all the time about, um, there are a lot of things in Aurora I just think about frequently. I'm going to say on a, maybe not daily uh, basis, but a couple times a week. Okay. <laughs> Constantly thinking about it. Can't constantly, do anything else. constantly thinking about the metabolic rift. But the um, uh, the people in the biome that is the maybe the first one that Freya goes to in the Arctic biome who raise don't tell their children that they're on a spaceship and then do that initiation ritual. Um, and yeah. they're they're kind of like, uh, which is such an amazing and very. I mean, I think in a, in the book as a whole like it really is ambiguous you know like what does it mean to try to like constitute a culture in this way in this completely artificial um in this completely artificial situation which is both artificial and also is their entire lives right yeah. and is the entire lives of this entire like you know it is their world yeah. you know um uh yeah anyway that was just what i was thinking about right what's it like to live Speaking of Aurora, what's it like to live in a world that where everything curves upward like this? When you like look out on the toward the horizon, Crazy it's man. like curving upward yeah. instead of dropping off that way. And then being told, no, you're actually on a spaceship. And then you're like, a what? Yeah. <laughs> because there's nothing above you <laughs> to say like what space is. And then they, I mean, before they even tell you that, they just take you out and like take the blindfold off. Like that's insane. Yeah. Also, oh, yeah, like exactly. what do they say, like, are oh, we gonna put you in this suit? Why? What's the suit? Oh, you'll see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <What>? Exactly. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, that I feel like that 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 is so much why that novel has to end with like body surfing and being in the pool of you know both 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 uh sort of like floating and being in the pool of gravity at the same time because like just imagine uh not having up or down correspond to yeah yeah Bizarre. it's, it's crazy man <laughs> freaking trippy bro uh um. Anyway, I think that that was relevant, although I admit that was a detour. Why not? Um, the Arctic Ocean is yellow. Yeah. Um, which reminds me of like the dye that you put in the toilet bowl, basically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
which is but I like how blue, of course. <laughs> blue, yeah. But I like how it's like, is it ugly? Yes. Is it dangerous? Possibly. Is it necessary? 100 percent Yeah. Like yeah. very, very necessary. So, you know, again, it's part of that series of failures that success is going to look like um for a for like a very long time if mm. we're to combat climate change, is that like we're gonna have to do some ugly things, but um hopefully they'll work out. So again, not being afraid to have a Pyrrhic defeat, right? Um, essentially. Yeah. And not hold, and not holding onto a set of claims about uh, like uninterrogated yeah. claims about purity too, right? This yeah, is very, that, yeah. like, right. Because we, we get that, um, uh, you know, so even, I mean, even to do this, the petroleum based dyes were cheap to manufacture and only mildly carcinogenic natural dyes made of oak and mulberry bark were non-petroleum based and only a little bit poisonous. You know, it's not, there's not some, you know, uh, there are draw there are drawbacks to both of those. So it's not like you can say like, well, if if we did it through a natural method, right, with mulberry yeah. bark, then it would be okay. Right. Um, you know, it's it's like uh you have to go into this with a picture that doesn't say that there is some like pure version of what nature is, right? Because like it's already like um it's already a totally mixed bag and you know everything has to be at this point i mean it does kind of seem like at least at the in the kind of geoengineering stuff we are on the terrain of everything has to be tried yeah yeah you know? no all hands on deck as uh, as stan has been saying but also like yeah no bad ideas essentially um there's a giant herd of caribou Oh, and there's another part where Mary, which a, a thing that she says, she has said to Minister Chan so many times, but she just goes up to, to Art and is like, we're so stupid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I think is like, and it just, again, going back to, to Twitter conversations and academic, uh, you know, uh, building your fence around your academic, uh, enclosing your academic territory yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Just admit that you're stupid admit that you don't know anything um also you know i was just thinking i mean art in this because because so much of i mean they do get out of the airship and they like walk around and they go out and get cold and then and then get back in um but it, it is also a little bit like art is finally um uh, like he's the movie director you've been waiting to see and oh, yeah. right because he 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 gives them views um yeah, for sure. uh, a few hours later they were flying over a herd of caribou that covered the tundra from horizon to horizon i mean and you can just picture this you know you can picture this because you can well, picture it from like uh you know planet earth or whatever any number right? of yeah documentary imax documentaries that you saw as exactly a field trip in the eighth grade exactly art admitted he had brought the airship down to the right altitude to create this effect they were almost 500 feet above the ground from this height there seemed to be millions of animals covering the whole world these were migrating west in loose lines like banners or ribbons which bunched whenever they were crossing a stream it was stunning to see i mean and this is partly about like giving people you know here the novel is giving you an image of something uh you know an an image that gives you a glimpse of something that's actually about a transformed way of life right we can imagine this we can picture it 
But here in the novel itself, also art is giving them the glimpse of what is in the process of happening too, of what ha what half earth looks like or what rewilding looks like. Yeah, and it gives you the image of a thing that you've already seen before in those nature documentaries, but puts you in the perspective of being able to actually see it in real life unmediated. Yeah. Like yeah. you could be in the airship seeing it for yourself. Mm -hmm. You don't have you don't have to rely on the camera um to do it right um yeah that's cool um they go over the mediterranean and he like, there's another moment of kind of the crossover of mythology and science where they bring up the the idea that the legend of noah's flood grew out of the flooding of the black sea by the mediterranean um i love that it's a very Mar uh, mars trilogy thing where the Mediterranean floods, um, two years of flow at a thousand times the rate of the um, Amazon, moving at 40 meters a second, carving a channel a thousand feet deep until the med was filled and the two bodies of water equalized in elevation. Um, extremely cool. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like just that kind of the science fictional qualities of the world that we live in already. <laughs> You don't need like lightsabers or shit. Um, and then that there's lakes in the Sahel, which again, which is uh, which cause which is good for the people who live there, but also there's less dust flying into the Atlantic and the plankton are starving, which seems bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but again, it's another solution that's going to create more problems, but we're just going to deal mm. with those as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, terra, terraforming Earth, and they're, they're terraforming Earth in a different way, right? Change, changing, you know, changing a biome, right? Yeah. 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 Um. Um, and it does seem like this leads in. I don't know if it's the next chapter or not, but this leads. I guess it is. Yeah. What leads. Say, there's, there's also there's changing a biome but there's also preserving a biome because there's no more glaciers no, no more snows of kilimanjaro which means they have to pipe all the water from the ocean so that it feeds the streams that feed the herd animals that are like central to the functioning of the planet's biosphere essentially yeah yeah yeah, yeah making earth earth mm -hmm. uh which which then I do think like leads into chapter 103, which is the, um, you know, uh, world, world spirit day. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 <laughs> Harmony day, Gaia day, Harmony day, Gaia day, Mamma Mia day, Mamma Mia um, day. Sur <laughs> time to surf. Uh, yeah. So final, final celebration of surfing, um, in the book. Um, or a final, I should say finally a celebration of surfing in the book because Mary is not prone to surf. No, it's She's not. She's prone to not like swim nicely in a, in a, in the Zurich sea, but. Yeah. In a very, very cold lake. Um, and also, I mean, it would not be, I mean, I, the, like, uh, in the last four chapters of the book we get at least two significant party scenes um right and it you know would not be uh the um 
It would not be a Kim Stanley Robinson novel without some like party scenes where there are like bonfires and people are drinking and getting high and singing and playing music and, uh, you know, generally all- experiencing joy with other people. <laughs> when they're all trying to feel it. And they're not sure if they are feeling it, but they're trying and the, and they're like, I think it's important just to try. And there's no coincidence that like the, the guy in this chapter is a linguist and he has a lot of fun with language on 539. Uh, yes, I was a little drunk, a little high, a little giddy. I mean, think about it, a worldwide moment during which all sentient beings aware of the project were to sing praise together to the one planet we stood on to perform the no sphere created by this so vast and complex biosphere. Well, standing on the lithosphere and contemplating the hydrosphere and circulating the atmosphere in and out of us breath after breath. It's great, but it's a little hypothetical too, right? It's hard to know how to feel it. What could we do in that moment, but try as a linguist, I naturally think of the words involved, but there was more to it than that. So I tried all that too. I drank and I looked around at the faces of the other people on the Ridge, all of them also trying. And many of them, many of them had their dogs with them. The dogs too were trying, trying to understand it, very aware that something unusual was happening, which that as such that some of them barked or howled, which some guys instantly took up. Of course, it was time to howl, howl at the moon like wolves. What a great language. And besides, we were like wolves. And then you know, wolves turned, we turned wolves into dogs. Dogs turned us from orangutans into humans. Whole great circle of life there. I think cats turned us into humans. <laughs> No, actually, cats are turning us into cats. If only. Well, if you ask my partner how much she sleeps all day, like she's definitely turning into a cat. <laughs> Curled up like a little kitty cat. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think that the sort of, I mean, it's an interesting, I was just thinking while you were talking that, um, you know, the idea of being like caught up in this, but then like wondering if you're really having the feeling, what is this feeling, you know, uh, uh, it, it seems like, uh, our narrator here really has the feeling only when at the very end, um, uh, uh, I caught the longest left of my life at point panic, what, uh, hearing what a wonderful world, uh, running through his head. And I flew out of that wave just before it closed out up there into the air over the wave, suspended weightless with the offshore spray, et cetera, et cetera. You know, he, he has the, he has the feeling only finally when he is actually like doing the thing that allows him to have the feeling as opposed to like being in the scene where he's getting to think about having the feeling. But we also get this image of, you know, sort of worldwide togetherness and a kind of like just like this enthusiasm you know like a kind of enthusiasm and joy and a moment um a moment of celebration and this is like really such a hard to imagine like it's so hard to imagine this not being like you know sponsored by coca-cola you know what i mean like not being like a commercial event or not being like that the thing that they do on tv on new year's eve where like they show you New Year's happening all over the world or whatever it is, um, which is not to be skeptical about, about this, but to say that like we're, you know, we're thinking about like what a kind of alternative like moment of like planetary celebration would be one not produced, you know, um, not being uh, whatever performed for the cameras. There was something about it early on as like uh no one really knew who the organizers were. They tried to keep it that way, but it kind of got out um, that 
you were supposed to do it or whatever. I don't think anyone ever figured out who organized it. Whoever they were, they wanted to stay out of the way and have it look self-organized. So like, yeah, that's, you know, Coca-Cola would want everyone to know that Coca-Cola yeah, was the yes. one to organize yeah. it. So again, there's a kind of utopian possibility here of like, you know, people do get together stupidly on New Year's Eve, uh, the worst holiday that there is oh, every year. And, <laughs> and just coincidentally, a bunch of cameras happen to be there and Ryan Seacrest is there and oh, oh, Dick Clark is dead still. But um, <laughs> But that's not to say just because capitalism has uh, conquered that doesn't it's not to say that it doesn't actually reflect something that's real about collective celebration. And it's not to say that it something quote unquote organic couldn't actually arise from collective conditions and a, a, a demand for a kind of global celebration. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, even the possibility of having the mediated experience of tapping on your phone to say that, yes, you know, like I did participate in this, right? Um, presumably through, the, pre presumably through the, like the new internet that's, you know, the democratic internet or whatever, whatever it is. Um, the good internet that doesn't spy on us unless we <laughs> tell unless, it, it can. Unless we wanted to. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Um, yeah, but I, I think, think it's, it, I mean, it doesn't quite get us to that sort of uh, Badim's saying, you know, we we need like we need a religion, right? Right. Um, but at least it gets us sort of to a party, um, which seems like it well, matters. and maybe that's what a religion mm -hmm. is or something. But but it, it is the it is the you know to believe, kneel down and pray type thing. I yeah. mean, you <laughs> yeah. just have to try. Yeah. That, that that is the religion. Is just, trying it whether yeah. you whether you think it's working or not if you're doing it turns out you're doing it i yeah. mean even if you're pretending to do it you're still doing it you're you're giving it um you're giving it authority you're authorizing it which is the same as going to meetings i guess like they're boring and interesting at the same time if you're there you're actually contributing to the meeting even yeah. if you're not don't believe that it's going to work probably it doesn't mean that you're it probably doesn't mean that you're uh, contributing to it if you're a spy from the FBI, for example, but. Um, well, I, yeah, yeah. Or maybe it does. Maybe it does indicate a kind of authorized, maybe by, if the FBI is spying <laughs> on you, maybe it is, does mean you're doing something important. Uh, yeah. Or their, you know, uh, their algorithm is like severe, <laughs> severely out of whack or they just need to make some arrests, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or they're over budgeted and they have nothing to do except like try to, you know, pick up women, pick up leftist women. At, uh, yeah, ex exactly. Exactly. And then ar arrest poor over eager young people after they've uh, entrapped them. Trick. Yeah. Trick them into like buying a gun or something, building a bomb. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which speaking of which in the, um, I think this is the end of the, the end of the chapter when Mary moves into her new place on 546. Um, mm -hmm. She and uh, she and Badim, so Badim has taken over and she uh, uh, um, he says again, I still think we need a religion. Um, 
Mary regarded him curiously, even now she knew so little about him, really, her man from Nepal. She had heard things recently, not to her face, but around the internet, rumors to the effect that the Ministry for the Future had been thousands strong and had waged a savage war against the carbon oligarchy, murdering hundreds, tipping the balance of history in a new direction. Bollocks, no doubt, but people dearly loved such stories. The idea that it all happened uh, in the light of day was too frightening history being as obviously out of control as it was, better to have secret plots ordering things in a realm without witnesses. Not that she completely disbelieved this particular tale. Her man had a look that could freeze your blood, and a lot of money had disappeared into his division without explanation. And then she says, do you have someone like I had you? And he's like, no. And he, there's nobody who he could trust in that way, um, which is, I think, a really interesting this is like an interesting moment in the Mary Badim relationship. I what made me think of it was I think that the sort of insight about like um, the kind of preference to tell stories about secret plots that happen in the dark um, is partly because like it's so hard to kind of um, you know metabolize or deal with or recognize the operations of power just like as you can actually see them, right? You know, like thinking thinking that there is some shadowy thing that you don't see is easier. It's easier to think like, you know, there's some scary thing like going on in the basement than it is to recognize that like, in fact, all around you, like things, you know, like, I mean, this just like right back to like, oh, we're living in a moment in which it just like is being rawly exposed that, um, uh, there's apparently some consensus, at least among the, you know, those in power in our country that some people uh, have lives that are worth more than other people's, which is, of course, something that we like all know. Right. Um, but like, it's easier to turn to like the shadow story than it is to realize that this is just like right there in front of us, you know, like mm -hmm. the exploitation, the harm, you know, the opening of people to death is like right there, right? Mm -hmm. Um um, so I think that that, like, I, I think that that, that is like a really, we're getting a really interesting framing there of like, um, you know, uh, that doesn't say that there isn't power, um, and it doesn't say that power doesn't operate in ways that, um, uh, um, benefit the few right but but in our right but what it does but what it does say is that we turn to a different kind of story because that kind of story like you know is easier to deal with or gives us uh you know like a little thrill in a way that like the the basic operations of power that we that are there in front of us don't um but I also think that this this moment of like Miriam Badim is interesting because we know that she kind of has known this you know, she has, you know, she does seem to have early on kind of given him, uh, given him at least a tacit sort of permission to continue doing something he was already doing. Um, and that then, you know, uh, their relationship turns out to have been something that was particular and is not just simply replicable. Like he's not finding another Badim, you know, um, that, you uh, which is maybe because it was like a sort of, this was a situation of a state of emergency that is passing, but he doesn't seem to think it's over at all, right? I mean, he seems to think that um, the fight is going to have to continue on the terms that he's been fighting at. He and yeah, others. He seems pretty, he seems a little bit worried about the fact that he doesn't have 
his own version of himself to, to do this, that he's trying to do both jobs and he's not sure if it's going to work out. I think another thing to add about the story about that, you know, that it's a comforting story about secret um, cabals working behind the scenes, uh, determining the future is because it's also a comfortable story because it lets us throw up our hands and not get yeah. involved Yeah, and say, well, there's nothing I can do about it anyway, because it's all predetermined or the powers that be are too powerful. And, they're never going to relent or, or whatever they're, they, they're, they're too wrapped up in their own interests or they're under the control of this, these people that I can't control that I don't have any control over. So, you know, what's the point. And one of the things that Mary productively rejects in that story is that those people may be acting, but if they are, there's nothing I can do about that. Uh, outside of for her, like firing Badim or, or exposing it or whatever. So why bother with it? Why worry about it? Yeah, if I, you know, like she trusts Badim to do what Badim does, but she has her own sphere that she can actually control. And so there's a matter of kind of, if there is a vast conspiracy, which there isn't, but if there was, you, you wouldn't be able to control it anyway, but there are things in your own sphere, which is not to say that like to individualize the problem and say, you should just change all your light bulbs and buy a Prius. Um, but that there are things that you could do that, that are in your control that you could make the world, um, work on making the world the way that you want to make it yeah, I mean, separate it, from that conspiracy theory. Yeah. Yeah. And it does seem, you know, like that in the end, um, so I, th I think it, it seems to be that it is not the case that um, everything that we saw in the course of the novel that, that took the form of direct action um, uh, of one kind or another was in fact the ministry for the future, right? I mean, you know, and, and, uh, and you know, obviously here we get like the sort of play off the ominous sound of the phrase, <laughs> the ministry for the future. Um, uh, and yet, on the other hand, like um, uh, Mary's work and Badim's work went, did go hand in hand, right? And both seem to have been necessary, you know? Um, uh, it seems like this is a sort of like uh, the, the kind of, um, the sort of direct attacks um, that Badim seems to have been part of in one way or another, like um we're needed mm -hmm. we're part we're part of what has allowed the kinds of changes to take place um uh and that that you know that there was something sort of like fortunate in uh the coming together of mary and badim um into this particular institutional structure that they were in um yeah i was thinking about right. that too badim the fact that he doesn't have a person like himself is probably because Badim would be pretty unique in that situation of a person who sort of grows up on the streets as a, you know, you know, under like an underground criminal or whatever, and then somehow manages to like take a sharp turn and become uh, essentially a bureaucrat or a functionary, uh, but still maintains a kind of link to that underworld. Like it's a very yeah. CIA. George H.W. Bush. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. George H.W. Bush, who grew up on the streets. <laughs> I mean, 
you know, because, it was on a certain street in Dallas in 1960. Well, exactly. You know exactly. I mean? But of course, the hilarious thing about like the CIA, right, and the FBI is like that just, the, you know, all those organizations, like they actually come out of like, you know, these tiny, this tiny like world of privileged, privileged elites, right? You know? Yeah. Um, right. Uh, I mean, so I guess the, the other thing about Badim then is that he, you know, if Mary, if Mary is the person who, um, you know, uh, like works through the, works through the forms, right. And goes to all the meetings, Badim often seems like he's not at the meetings. <laughs> You know, Badim is the person who is driven, who is driven by something like, by a kind of like content or meaning, you know, and I, I think we, when we see him, um, uh, when we see him return back home, we realize that that, what that meaning is, is in itself like kind of abstract, right? But he, but he thinks, you know, or, or at least hard to pin down, but he does think of it as like for the neighborhood, you know, like, so, so then I think the other kind of contrast, which is a, I feel like a really interesting thing that this book does throughout is between a sort of like a local and a global, right? Um, you know, what, like, what is it that you can learn or know or take to be urgent from like the very situation, from, from the understanding that your perspective is produced by like the very localness of your situation versus what is it that you can think is important or think needs to be done from the kind of perspective of um, not here, not here the planetary, but like the cosmopolitan or the global or something like that, right? You know, like from the perspective of like, well, there are always going to be central banks uh, or, or you know, whatever, um, yeah, uh, whatever it right. might be. Right, right, right. Um, we have two. There's only two more chapters. Um, one is re resolves a kind of the refugee story in a kind of you know capsule way or a representative way where the universal passports are sort of cashed in or however you would say it and um, this family of syrian refugees who have been refugees for 28 years um finally gets a permanent home and there's some acknowledgement at the beginning of the chapter of like, yeah, there's the white supremacist, like there's the Swiss Nazis <laughs> and we are aware of them, but we're just trying to keep our heads down or whatever. Um, terrifying. <laughs> terrifying. Yeah. But that becomes an occasion to, to for the refugee perspective to acknowledge this, the, pers the sense from which that kind of um, harsh reaction arises, which is, and kind of, try to understand it as a worry about, you know, a, as a mediation of the, the the demands of the local and the global mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and something about language too. They, like the narrator says, you know, once you talk to them in their language, they open up, like they're, they're, they're willing to, to help you. And they make this interesting point, which goes back to the kind of less than a million people uh, are the permanent inhabitants of the Arctic Ocean region, if you have a language that only 5 million people in the world speak, then yeah, you could be pretty nervous if all your kids start speaking English suddenly and no one, you know, speaks your language and you, you know, you're, your culture goes extinct, right? Right, um, right. Which is a terrifying and really, again, dangerous um, result of the hegemony of English. 
Well, it's also, it's interesting also because the refugee who's narrating this to us, um, uh, 71 years old, uh, right. my life, my life has passed, not, not wasted, but passed, um, thinks about at first thinks, I, I want to say she, but I actually don't know. Do we know the gender? of? I want to say she too, but I don't know if we, I want to are... say she, because she's cooking, but, right. uh, <laughs> Oh, you're such a sexist. I Hillary. know. I know. Uh, um, internalized misogyny. Internal. It's internalized misogyny. Uh, um, uh, she thinks at first she's going to go back, back to Damascus. Right. Um, and uh, uh, especially home itself. I remember when I left Damascus, I looked around and I promised myself I would someday come back. Damascus isn't like any other city. It's old, the oldest capital left on earth. And you can tell that when you're there, it's in the streets and the way it feels at night. Um, and then she doesn't go back. I was no longer that person, right? Um, she wants to live in a different way. And there's something that's very hopeful in deciding to move on, to do something different, to build a different kind of community, um, to be with this extremely diverse group of refugees where, um, you know, where they organize themselves around food and feeding, feeding people and, you know, building a kind of community of their experience. But that, uh, you know, that thought of Damascus there is also this like thought about a kind of, this is like the thought about like, how do you feel about your language? Right. I mean, um, you know, the encroachment of, uh, you know, there are different ways to like want to save your language against the encroachment of English, right? And presumably the like, you know, hating the presence of like brown people in your country um, <clears throat> is not a necessary way <laughs> to defend your language against global encroachment, right? Um, and that thought of like Damascus, the, old, the oldest capital left in the world, you know, which she's willing to allow to be just a memory, right? But we know that that's not something, she's not ever going to be able to reproduce that or even communicate like to her children um, what it felt like, you know, that's something that you could only feel when you were there, you know? So like she carries, she carries around that loss with her, uh, with her too. Um, you know, so, I mean, it's, it's such an interesting, like, uh, I think that this is such an interesting kind of framing of where that, where the refugee story goes, you know, yeah. like, um, well, so much of it is like the will of these, these particular people who have been through so much to keep making communal life with others, right. To build a life in the place where they are. Yeah. Build a life and like rec, um, build a, build a self, build an identity around it. Right. That, that the, the narrator says, um, uh, I had the chance to return. I got a plane ticket. I went to the airport thinking, I'll thinking I'll just go back and see it not to stay, but just to see it. The family didn't want to go, but then I did. But then they get to the airport and they don't want to go. They just decide to come back. Um, my family greeted me curiously, unaware of this shift, this fact that a different person had returned to them. I wasn't that person anymore. And there, it requires a kind of flash of recognition that like, I'm not, that I don't want to be there. That's not my home. That's not my family anymore. Something like that. Or maybe it's my home, but it's not where I live. Or maybe it's not my, whatever, you know, it's, it's, I've changed, it's changed enough where, it, it feels unheimlich now. Like it's not, it is uncanny. Right. Um, are you okay? And I said, yes, I'm okay. I just don't want to go anymore. 
I didn't understand it. So how could I explain it? Who can tell the riddle of their own true self? And here, the riddle, the, yeah. the Anglo-Saxon riddles and the eyewitness accounts have collapsed into one thing. And we see now finally that they are the same, like the self is a riddle itself. Um, and that's irreducible. That's not a product of capitalism. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that there that that there are just mystery mysteries of the universe that are out there and internal to to yourself that that um, are are part of just everyday life and that I mean to relate it to capital part of what capitalism does is prevents us from a asking and answering those riddles and exploring their their meaning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think also the sort of like. Um, you know, one thing it seems like the Mary's story, um, Fra well, Frank's story and Mary's story and the refugee story and maybe others in here um, are all about is like, um, what does it mean to to experience and then live with the experience of loss, right? And it doesn't mean to not have lost, right? It doesn't mean to have not lost things. It doesn't mean um, to not have suffered, and in fact, it might not even mean to live with it might not even mean like ending suffering, right? Um, it certainly doesn't mean ending suffering all told, right? Um, but it might not mean like feeling <laughs> feeling better. It might just mean like going on, like continuing to live. And that, you know, uh, which which seems very much the sort of like that's that's the kind of course we see Mary take. You know, we do see her sort of connect. Like not only in those, you know, her pleasure in seeing the animals, um, in continuing to like build her little life, um, uh, her pleasure in this connection with art that she decides she's not going to make it, she's not going to make it into anything, right? You know, it's just that like, she likes him, she feels like they might probably get to know each other, you know, the connection is worth it in, in and of itself, uh, but like none of those, none of those things like take away or redeem um, or in and of themselves, like make better the losses, right? You know, like living with the loss is sort of part of it, which is the, which to me feels very much like this is sort of asking us to think about, um, like how to not just cope with, but like work with and in the knowledge that like we've already lost a lot, you know, we've already lost so much, um, you know, in, in a way that I feel like is, a, is not at all like a kind of simple, like you can't give into despair or whatever it is, but rather that like, um, uh, you know, um, having, you know, having lost something can then feel like living in the wake of loss can feel like, like fate, right? That seems like that's, Frank's part of what Frank experiences in his PTSD, you know, he feel, you know, he has some sense that like the brain tumor was like fate, right? You know, like it was all fated there from that event. And I think that that can be a way that like significant loss just, just feels, you know, like you're fated to live in the wake of this. Right. Um, and, uh, and here I think we're getting this sort of idea that like, it's not the case that you don't live in the wake of the loss, right? Or that you can even really figure out how to remedy it or make it better. Um, but it's also the case that the loss doesn't 
uh, mean that like your life is determined, right? Um, right? Or that there is a kind of like fate hanging over you. Um, that instead like possibilities continue to open, right? Spring is still gonna come. You know, there's still moments of like delight and transcendence and you can still like work, you know, to make, uh, make history good. I wonder, it makes me think back to the, toward the beginning of the angel of his, Benjamin's angel of history, looking back on history as an unfolding catastrophe um, that they're mm -hmm. wishing away from. And rather than thinking about, and, and like the way you framed loss here is a kind of a different version of that, or like that law, not to say like loss is a gain or something like loss is a, actually has a positive element right, to it or something, right. meaning not meaning a good element, but just meaning a, it, it, it exists, but that, but that life itself is just a kind of collapse of possibility, like a constant collapse of possibilities of like every moment, uh, 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 holds out, you know, infinite possibilities, but they only get sort of singularityized into one thing mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and that so of course every of course loss is ubiquitous because we only have one sort of trajectory that we can possibly go on and all the others are lost to us so we are we're always dealing with the loss of possibility yeah yeah i don't know if that's helpful or good yeah <laughs> Well, I, I was also just thinking, it's interesting to me that the, um, so the last chapter takes place on Fasnach, um, you know, carnival, right, before Lent, right? So yeah. it's both, it's like the end of something and the beginning of something. And, and it is kind of also like, um, you know, the her also the harbinger of spring, too. Mm -hmm. um, and it, I'm, that is also right the celebration that's happening in the first book in the first yeah in the first book of the mars of red mars right when i think so when right? john boone is assassinated it's also yeah. Fasnach. i mean they're out they're wandering through the city they're wearing masks right maya has the yeah, yeah. domino on um, yeah, yeah uh you know i mean i feel like it's impossible not to read this chapter as like a repetition with a kind of difference right because like if that chapter is that chapter is the kind of like traumatic kernel in the mars books the place it's returned to becomes explicitly like the place that has to be returned to in memory even though in many ways also um you know it it's never clear like what it matters that john it, it, it in 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 the big picture of what happens on mars like that john is killed um and by whom, like right. turns out actually really not to matter all that much, right? I mean, he turned, yeah. you know, like it matters in certain kinds of ways and it matters personally. And like the loss right. of him is something that like um, everybody carries around with them. Everybody, you know, who knew him carries around with him. Um, but it's also not, it is neither an end, it's the beginning of the novel, but it's not right. like uh, an end or a beginning um, in other kinds of ways, right? Um, and, and here we have this sort of, you know, uh, this kind of meditation on a relationship between older people um, that isn't going to be marked by, like, the spontaneities and energies of youth, um, is not going to be, like, leapt into headlong, um, 
but is like full of delight and kind of hilarity and they play their slide whistles yeah. <laughs> together and they talk and they wander around the cold and art is wearing like a silver lemme jumpsuit and uh you know um uh and the sort of i mean so i think that there's a way in which like the um yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that the the echo here is both one of like um, it both transforms that earlier like carnival story, um, uh, and also in some ways like repeats it. Like we don't know what you know whether this what kind of beginning or end this constitutes. Um, we don't know who's being assassinated at this fast knock. <laughs> For example, for example, God knows how uh, many assassinations were going on. <laughs> but you know what I mean. I think it's no. Like I think really, it's. I think it's really, really interesting. Uh, I think yeah. that's a really amazing point. And I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. But as a kind of, you know, um, as a as a final chapter of this novel, and as uh, you know, things that Stan has said about he's going to keep writing, but they're not, but he, I, he seems to be done with like big giant novels like this is what one thing that he said. Uh, it's hard not to read this as a final chapter, uh, like kind of a, a, a giant mic drop of a career. <laughs> um, bookending the beginning with the Mars trilogy, which were, which weren't obviously his first novels. But um, I would also say that what's in, an interesting way that the, that this chapter follows on from, chapter 105 is that at the end of 105, the narrator concludes that what's important is dignity yeah, and that um, everyone in the world, once everyone in the world has their dignity, we'll be all right. And that's all that, that these refugees have ever wanted. And they open up a restaurant and they have a regular customers and they can do, you know, they, they speak the language and, and their customers joke with them and, and they're able to kind of really relate in a, in a way that, that these people have dignity. And then in the very next chapter, they, uh, Mary and Art go to this uh, big party where Art wears a silver lame jumpsuit <laughs> and, and everyone plays, hat. <laughs> and then everyone intentionally plays bad, uh, bad mu music badly and they jump all over the place drunkenly, which I think is, I don't, I don't, I think that is a sign of dignity that, yeah. that people have dignity when they're able to act out in that way and that the Swiss as such a dignified people, as Art says, like they party really hard when they party because the rest of the year they're so um, sort of wrapped up in their dignified lives or whatever. And so you only, you know, to be able to celebrate in this way means that you believe that you, you know, that, dig that dignity is reciprocated back at you. That if you're able to make a fool out of yourself in this way on this special night, then, you know, that that is, that is also kind of a sign of like, of having a dignity, of, of living a, a life with dignity in a way. I mean, and we, you know, and we get the, uh, I can't find the page, doesn't matter. Uh, we get the really like lovely idea that the part of how they do Fasnach is to, um, uh, is that if somebody's playing music, everybody should have an audience, right? And so, right. so it's this moment of just, um, uh, of recognition, you know, I mean, so this is all, I mean, so I think that the, that here we see that the dignity comes from, um, uh, comes from some kind of like shared, something that's shared, right? It comes from a kind of like shared life. Um, it comes from the willingness to share that life 
right with others uh you know that that there is a sort of um uh yeah i mean it, it's like it's in it's in the possibilities of being with other people right and living with other people and and doing that in this kind of conscious way and in that way the kind of you know the marian art story although we we end with this kind of you know we turn to this kind of romance, right? And that does seem really important. I mean, it seems really important that like one of the things that happens toward the end of this book is is the, you know, uh, part of how life life continue life's meaning continues to be in the living of it is that like you continue to love people, you know. Right. I mean, uh, and you continue to find possibilities in other people. Mm -hmm. um, but despite that, I I think also like it very much is an ending at a celebration, at an event, at a rich kind of a ritual event, something that's repeated every year that has to do with, you know, I mean, it has to do with like aspects of the Christian calendar, but probably is older than that. And it has to do with like spring and celebration and communal life. I think it's important that it ends in a city, you know, we don't have them wander off together into the Alps or like have the view from the dirigible or whatever, like, you know, they're, they're walking through the probably like slippery cold streets of Zurich drinking their uh, cafe correct or whatever, cafe fertig. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and then I think that the, um, you know, the at Mary's final reflections are exactly about that. Just, we keep going. We keep going. We never really come to the end, you know, that, and in that way, um, you know, that doesn't seem like that's about uh, intention or progress or goals. That's just about um, like uh, being the kind of living creatures that we are, you know, living, living life. Life is in the living. Yeah. And I think that the, the Guggen music is really yeah. crucial to that too. <laughs> where everybody, most people played a musical instrument in high school and they still have their instruments. And one night of the year, they get them out and they play loudly and out of tune <laughs> because most people can't really play that well, but they still can play. And so why not just do it as loudly as possible and have fun with it? Uh, there's a notion of, you know, music is adults at play. And um, again, that's another thing like, let's just cut like one aircraft carrier program or something. And yeah. then- just fun finance music program, universal music programs. Um, but that there's no such thing as fate is like somebody posted on Twitter the other day that they had just finished the book. Uh, I think it was David Aldana Cohen, maybe who's Daniel, any, what was it? What? Daniel, I think is his name, not David. Excuse me. Daniel. <laughs> Apologize. I'm a bad person. Um, oh, names, man that the big takeaway from the book is that there is no such thing as fate. Um, I mean, that's one of the crucial lessons from it, that, yeah. that, that the future is not determined, that there's no such thing as fate. Um, we will keep going. She said to him in her head to everyone she knew or had ever known all these people so tangled inside her living or dead. We will keep going. She reassured them all, but mostly herself, if she could, we will keep going. We will keep going because there's no such thing as fate because we never really come to the end. Which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. For the end of a book. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think, yeah, exactly. I think it, uh, it's a beautiful ending. Um, 
you know, has a little of the, the boats beating against the current kind of, exactly. right. Um, but, but also I think this is, you know, I don't know, this is so much a book about, um, uh, you know, people make history, not under circumstances of our own choosing. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, man, uh, I really, I was very moved by this book and I was, um, reading it a second time. I wish I had had time to like, just read it sort of like in just like a sustained way without taking notes on it. Like that was my, we'll have to go my back. biggest, <laughs> yeah, well, my biggest frustration with the last few episodes and how the holidays just break up our ability to record was that I wanted to just keep reading and finish it out all in one chunk, but it just became impossible to do. And so that like putting the book aside for a week and then suddenly reading 60 pages of it on a, on a Sunday was just so herky jerky and like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I agree. Although I have to say that I, I felt like, um, I was definitely in the right mood today for rereading the last section of it. Like the sort of like, post new year's reflecting on you know like you know whatever i'm sure i've i'm sure i've complained on this podcast before about new years <laughs> it's it's like was, the worst of all holidays uh, yeah it's i mean it's terrible in just like many many ways not least the whole calendar linear time part of it uh, ugh linear time so uh, oppressive but but this particular moment of just feeling like you know um yeah, uh, uh, it's it, so this, it's so foolish to think that like things are going to change because like w there's it's now 2021. Also, to me, a very strange, very weird that we're alive in the year 2021. Did not expect that to happen. Which uh, science fiction movie takes place in 2021? Is it like Escape from New York? I think that was. I think Escape from New York was like 2012 or something. Like that. <laughs> I, sw I swear to God, or maybe actually it might have been 90, 1997. What really? I'm serious. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I'll, I'll watch, I'll watch it tonight. Just to make sure. <laughs> you should, you should. Uh, um, but, but, you know, like, I feel like thinking about this at this moment, you know, in which like people are full of hope and, or optimism or, you know, cruel optimism. Uh, yeah. And also things are get, still just getting worse around us. And uh, yeah. This year's new year's Eve really tested my, I mean, not that I watched anything on, television or anything like that or celebrated in any way, but it really tested my pa my patience and my um, optimism, if you will, just looking at Twitter <clears throat> and seeing, actually, I think it was a day before New Year's where like South Beach, Florida was just full of unmasked tourists oh and stuff. Oh God. And God. I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> why again do we have to stop global warming to save Florida from like the oceans <laughs> taking it? Just give it back. You're all you're here for selective selective sea level rise. <laughs> selective. My form of eugenics is extremely selective <laughs> and very judicious. Let me tell you. No uh, one's gonna argue with the logic of my eugenics. Uh, oh god. Uh well, um I have really loved talking about this book with you, as always. So, I have enjoyed it as well talking with you about the book too. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I probably nobody else feels this way about this podcast, but I often do feel like it's a real kind of lifeline for me. Um, 
I say that all the time because not that I'm like drowning, but you know. Yeah, well, you're not literally drowning. I say that all the time because you're literally one of four people I talk to. So definitely, I would be definitely losing my mind. Um, No, I think that many people enjoy our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I do think people enjoy our podcast. Unpredictably, inexplicably. Inexplicably, inexplicably. I mean, and also I just like, you know, I do think for all of the like um, shit that people love to say about podcasts, um, you know, that people listen to them and that people make them, I, you know, I do think it just like is one of the many signs of like how much we long to have conversations with others, you know, not just, not just in this moment of isolation, but just like generally like to think with other people and talk with other people. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I think that pod, yeah, like, I don't know, we should probably wrap it up before I get into my theory of podcasts, but, yeah. um, but I agree. Like, <laughs> I, I think that the popularity of podcasts does reflect a sense that people want to talk with each other and talk to each other and communicate something. And that I think in that regard, ours is one of the few real podcasts because we only have like 100 listeners. So just like there are less than a million people who live around the Arctic Circle, uh, there are only like about maybe one or 200 people who listen to this podcast. And for that reason, it makes it makes for a, it makes this a real pro- podcast. And let me just say, while while I'm on the topic, let me thank our subscribers <laughs> in this final episode of season eight. How about that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Our, Some people yeah. give us money, which is really lovely. You don't have to do it, but you do, and we appreciate it. Uh, Travis, Angela, Adam, Benjamin, Paula, Bill, Daniel, and Benjamin again. Benjamin, uh, I don't know if you know this, but you are signed up t- for two subscriptions to our podcast. I don't know oh. if that means you're very generous or that you just forgot that you are uh, giving us what if there are two two benjamins no it's the same last name i just withheld the last names yeah i mean that was tasteful of you to do that i'm a very tasteful don't dox them matt (laughs) i don't want to dox anybody for subscribing to our communist uh it is incredibly nice of people to do that and um i still want um us to add a newsletter component to the podcast we need to have a meeting about this because I don't know what I would uh, write or when or about what or me neither. Uh, but I feel like we should both be making ourselves uh, write things, and that would be a way that we would have to do it because we would uh, owe it to our many fans, our ones of subscribers. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Uh, okay. I'm I'm yeah. game for writing. Okay. Um, we'll t- we'll have a meeting. Uh, we'll have a meeting. So uh, so. Uh, this is the last ministry uh, episode on ministry, obviously, because we finished it. Um, we're probably, so Matt and I are both starting teaching, and I want you all to send, um, uh, you know, universal energies to Matt because he is going to be teaching in person. And I only just found this out, and I think this is uh, terrible. And so we need to produce like a protective cloud around, around him. <laughs> It's a bad idea. I should not have agreed to do this, but I'm doing it anyway. Well, I blame the college that you're teaching at. And uh, um, so we may need a little bit of time before we do our next episode, um, but we'll probably do maybe a couple of movie episodes, maybe some sort of like incidental things. And we will um, 
engage in a lively debate with each other about what our next novel should be. And then we will leap into another one of Stan's novels because surprisingly, there are still a lot of them that we haven't discussed. There's like at least five, I think six or seven maybe. Um, (laughs) Who who knows? Who can even count? Who could count that high? (laughs) We also are looking forward, hopefully, to being able to chat with Stan um, about the Ministry for the Future in the very near future. Um, so look out for that. Um, probably won't be for a couple of weeks, at least I would say, but um, yeah, like uh, probably the end of, toward the end of January, you can expect to hear from us again. Yeah. We'll be, and, we'll be back as soon as we can. Maybe we'll just like watch a shitty movie and talk about it. Um, oh, we have to watch that Michael Bay produced movie about oh, yeah. quarantine. Yeah. And yes. I watched the first 20 minutes of Wonder Woman and I don't even think it's worth talking oh, no, about. No, 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 frankly. no, 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 um, no, no. So yeah, anyway, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening and uh, take care. Happy, uh, happy new year, everybody. Keep on reaching for the stars. Happy fucking new year. All right, (laughs) bye. (laughs) Bye.